Welcome to Forecast. Now here's your host, Michael Fogg. Welcome to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thank you so much for joining us again this week on the Farcast. It is a great privilege to have you each and every week. And thank you for your notes, your letters, your emails, your uh, couple of tweets, even some texts. We appreciate it a great deal. Uh, please remember that on the Farcast, we think that money is hard to make. Be careful with it. That old-fashioned intelligence, research, uh, hard work, discipline, patience are the keys to successful investing. And finally, that emotion is the foe of the long-term investor. So as you're feeling fearful here, as these markets are rocking and rolling back and forth, remember what Kenny Polcari has been telling you for a long time, uh, Jim Urio uh, and, and I, and I uh, settle down. Pay attention to the numbers. Remember the rule in the fish market. Ignore the yelling and screaming and pay attention to the price of fish. Well, we've had a really eventful couple of weeks. Uh, great forecasts have been guiding you through this market, particularly if you've been listening to Kenny Polcari, Jim Urio, and others. They brought us terrific information. Great week, great uh, forecast last week and your feedback. And thanks for the response. It was great. Hope everyone had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Kenny Polcari, welcome to the forecast. Welcome, Michael. I hope you had a nice Thanksgiving as well. I did. It was absolutely one of the best dinners I've ever had in my life. Laurie cooked, and it was fabulous. Everything was fabulous. I mean, I'm, it, it was it was the best meal I've ever had. Good. Well, that's what it's supposed to be. It's all about Thanksgiving, right? And my children were here. We had a great. We had it. We really did have a great time. So markets have been all over the place. KP interest rates have been coming down, um, and and the uh, the volatility, you know, was with us again last week. Tell us what you think's going on. You know, it was, and and, and we talked about this right last week. Was a short week. It was a holiday week. Uh, so there was volumes were lower than they'd been, and so moves tend to be exaggerated. Last week, they were exaggerated to the downside. And look, they tested those lows that you and I have been talking about now since the lows were created in the October meltdown. We tested. Uh, it found support there. The buyers defended it. And now it's trying, in fact, to uh, repair itself. And look, uh, after the weekend, we went through Black Friday and Cyber Monday and the whole uh, shopping Saturday weekend, and the numbers have been off the charts, right? The consumer is clearly healthy. There's nothing to really worry about. You can see the market uh, is, is once again now trying to focus on really what are all geopolitical issues, right? It's Brexit. It's the G20. It's Italy. It's the budget in Italy. It's uh, 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 and Fed policy, right? It's not, the market's not so much concerned at the moment about the macro data. It's much more focused on the geopolitical. So once we get some clarity so, on the geopolitical then the markets, we should see the markets start to settle in and start to steadily then build that foundation and move on. So do you you think we've got to wait? You think we've got to wait for the G20 meeting? You think that we're all going to really sit and wait to see what Xi and uh, President Xi and President Trump actually say to each other? Well, I think that's absolutely what's going to be on the minds this week, because G20 is this weekend, right? You saw all the all yes. the data today with uh, Larry Kudlow coming out uh, today and, and talking about, you know, all the conversations that we're starting to have again. And that's all positive. You saw the market reacted. We were negative this morning a little bit, and maybe we ended the day up. Uh, and so, therefore, I think the market is absolutely waiting to see what comes out of that. Now, look, there's not a lot of people that think there's going to be, you know, uh, an agreement on the table at the G20, but I think 
no, I'm hearing no. That at least right. we're, we're, that at least we're talking, right? That at least we're we're making progress, and I think the market liked that today. I think that I think that that's absolutely right. So you know, one of the things that you and I have been talking about all the way along is that is to is to keep watching the numbers. And in a GDP, and Kenny and I, ladies and gentlemen, were tweeting back and forth about this this weekend. That's two fifty-seven-year-old guys tweeting back and forth over the weekend, and we we were tweeting, tweeting about even though Kenny's older than I am, don't ever forget that by a whole month. Uh, uh, yeah. But what we were tweeting about Every was week. look, there is. Kenny and I have been talking for almost two years now saying there is more oil than we know what to do with. There is plenty of oil. It makes sense to both of us that the price per barrel is dropping. But we're an economy that is driven two-thirds, 70 percent by the U.S. consumer. The thing you have to pay attention to are these shopping numbers that are coming in. You had a really strong Black Friday. You had a really strong back-to-school season. The U.S. consumer is spending and this is we're going to have strong right. retail numbers. This is still looking good, right, Kenny? I think it's looking great. And listen, don't get fooled. And you hit the view of the nail on the head. The world is awash in oil. I am not buying the argument that oil is collapsing because demand is slowing, the economy is getting the, the economy starting to turn. I'm not buying that at all. I think oil is collapsing because there's a realization that the world is awash in oil. We're pumping oil like crazy. And last week after notice, we had a real breakdown in oil on the same day that Trump came out in full support of the crown prince, you know, over this over this uh, Washington Post murder. Be, say what you want, believe what you want, but one way or the other, in order for the Saudis to get our full kind of support, there had to be this kind of handshake agreement. Look, we're not going to be so quick to cut production of oil. We're going to make sure that the world is well supplied. Because who's kidding who? That's when you saw the minute Trump came out and said that, that's when you saw oil really collapse and, you know, find some find some support down at the 51 range. And it makes perfect sense. You know, with so much oil in the world, 50 to 60 dollars is probably about right unless they artificially cut production and then try to force the price of oil above. But one way or the other, I am not. Okay, come back. But Kenny, so. The U.S. economy is great. Yeah, okay. But so here's what's on my mind. Okay, at what point, because we're producing a lot of oil. I mean, we can, we can, we're at the point where we can export oil in the U.S. We're getting, we're right at the point where we can export oil if we want to. So, so with that price dropping, when does that begin to hurt our own oil industry? We've always seen it as a great well, tax cut for the consumer. Lower at the pipe, yeah, lo- so lower, you know, lower heating costs. When, when, but, but as producers, you know, that's going to hurt their profits. It could hurt jobs in this country if prices fall too far. Well, that's true. But I think in the U- I think in the U.S., I think the break-even, at least the last time we were having this conversation, probably about a year ago when oil was trading in the 30s and low 40s, I think break-even for the U.S. producers is somewhere in the low 40s. So at 50 or $60 a barrel, the U.S. producers are certainly making money. Now, listen, are they making as much of oil worth $80 a barrel? Of course not. But it's all about efficiencies, right? Technology in that industry has created great efficiencies. And so the market Huge, huge. And, yeah, okay, so will some of the energy names kind of back off? They will back off until it finds its level. And what I think we found our level right in here. I think oil is going to remain in the, you know, kind of in the mid-50s. And I think at that level, it's great. I think the producers are doing well. I think the consumer is doing well. I think the global economy will benefit. 
I think, uh, uh, and so I'm I'm okay with it. Okay, so two things, Kenny. Two things, Kenny. So do you think we will have a – so Fred and Ethel are listening. Are we going to tell them we're going to have a Santa Claus rally? Will we see this market close higher on the year? We are about – by the way, we are about exactly where we were one year ago on the S&P. I mean, we are fractions of a point away, just three or four points away where we were one year ago. Where do we end the year here? Do we get the Santa Claus rally? So here's what I think, and I think my answer is going to be different than it might have been a couple of weeks ago because I thought that the rally was going to be stronger. But the fact is I think there are a lot of geopolitical issues that people are concerned about, and until there's some clarity on that, then I think you're going to, it's, going to, it's going to put a little bit of a ceiling on the rally. I do think we're getting one. I don't think it's going to be as strong. So where are we today? I think we closed at 2680. If we end the year somewhere in the mid-2700s, 27. 40, 60, something like that, which is uh, up about 2% from here is probably a fair assessment. You know, a month ago, I would have thought we were going to get closer to, closer to 2,800 or 2,850. I don't think we're going to get there, but I do think in the next couple of weeks, you're going to see the market stabilize once we get clarity on G20 and we get clarity on the Fed. I think you're going to see the market rally into the, year, into the end of the year. Okay, so, but to keep your powder dry, stay the course. And then finally, Kenny, I don't know if you saw this, but just as we were coming on the air, the Washington Post released an article that the president says, so far, I'm not even a little happy with my selection of Jay Powell. Uh, He says he thinks that the U.S. central bank is way off base with what they're doing, and he blamed the Fed for the recent stock market sell-off, General Motors plans to close the plant and cut more than 14,000 jobs. And then he said... I'm doing deals, and I'm not being accommodated by the Fed. They're making a mistake because I have a gut, and my gut tells me more sometimes than anybody else's brain can ever tell me. Uh, what, right. do, what do you make of that? So, How do markets react when so listen, when you hear that I, on the I floor? What do people is, do? Well, I think a lot of that is Trump being Trump because he can't seem to keep his, you know, his mouth shut when it comes to the Fed and Fed policy. Listen, there is that division. The Fed is autonomous, right? They've got to act in what they see. But here's what I do think you're going to see. Uh, and so, therefore, I don't think his commentary is, is helpful at all, quite honestly. I think his commentary like that only creates anxiety and angst for the market. I think, really, he should, he should back off when he's talking about, uh, when he's talking about uh, Jay Powell and the Fed chair. But I do think, and we talk about this, I think December's day. You, you and I agree about I that, by the way. Believe, I mean, we don't. I mean, we don't we don't need the, the president of the United States. And I mean, any president of the United States should Correct. not address or start to lobby the Fed. It didn't work out well for Richard Nixon. It really tanked no, the economy in years following. Johnson, That's a bad, right. bad idea. Right. It is a no. bad idea. But here's what I think. I, here's what I think is going to happen. I don't I don't think that the Fed is was responsible for the for the sell off, because, listen, we've been talking about rising rates now for better than a year. People people knew what the schedule was. I think what happened was uh, that they're all of a sudden, you know, the realization when rates spiked in October, the realization that maybe people thought rates were going to spike faster than expected is what caused that self. And then we had all that internal damage. And then I think it's easy to blame the Fed. But I don't think the Fed's to blame at all. I think the Fed is right on course. But I think what you're going to hear in December from the Fed is rates are going up in December, but then there's going to be that more dovish talk for 2019. And you can t- uh, the reason I say that is because uh, Vice Chair Clarita and then you've got Atlanta's Bostic who have come out the today. last couple of times that they've spoken. Yes. And they've all of a sudden yes. tried to casually drop that, you know, float that balloon and drop that idea that maybe 2019, the Fed's not going to be as neutral. aggressive as maybe we thought. And I think that's then what's going right. to help the Santa Claus rally. I think it's going to help the market stabilize. Because I do think that's true. I do think that, you know, the Fed should be 
things have changed around the world a little bit. The ECB, Brexit, all that stuff is a little bit concerning now. So maybe the Fed should take a more of a wait and see attitude. And I think that's exactly what you're going to see in December. And then I think that's okay. exactly going to help the market rally into Europe. And I think I, I think I agree with you. But here's my final question. And of course, I'm out of time. And you're fabulous. We learn so much from you every week, KP. Thank you so much. You're just a terrific contributor to the forecast. So here's my final question. You, As what, what, what we said, of course you do. You're only human. But look, my final question, <laughs> as we look at what's going on in, in the markets, we've seen a shift from the from the only thing that was working was the FANG stocks to uh, a market that's playing more defense. Some of the industrials have been working better. Healthcare has been working. Some of the more stable yeah. techs, even the banks got a little, little bit of a bid. So are we going to yeah. continue to see that, that uh, risk-off trade as we go into 2019? I, I think you're going to see more of a, a shift into defensive and value, right? The FANG stocks and the tech stocks, yes. they're all about growth, 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 which is great, and it worked well for a long time. But I think just as 2019, and you'll hear more from the Fed, I think you're going to see the shift to more of the you know, less sexy value names, but names that are solid, big Americana, dividend-playing names that people will find some safety and security in. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad I don't think that's a bad thing at all because a lot of those names are very, very attractive after this recent sell-off. So, so I'm going value. Ladies and gentlemen, the great Kenny Polcari is going value. Uh, he is a managing director at O'Neill Securities and director of floor operations, my very good friend, uh, who, as you've heard, is much older than I am, too. When we come back on the forecast, we have our senior political analyst, the great Dan Mahaffey, who's going to be telling us what's going on in Washington and around the world. We're even going to get into Brexit. Please stay with us. We're going to be right back. You're listening to Forecast. Thank you for listening to The Farcast every week. Are you interested in a daily update on the investment world when you wake up? Beginning in December, you can listen every weekday morning to The Farcast's three-minute morning brief. Futures, overseas markets, and headlines in three minutes to start your day. Watch on Apple Podcasts and other major podcast platforms to subscribe and listen. Coming in December, The Farcast three-minute morning brief. Now more with Michael Farr and The Farcast. Welcome back to the Farcast. I am Mike Farr, and I'm joining you this week from Naples, Florida. We've got our faithful crew in our studio in Chatter in Washington, D.C., where it's a lot colder than it is in Naples. Though I have to confess, I mentioned this earlier with Kenny, it's a little chilly down here. High of 68 today, uh, and I'm wearing a sweater. I know you all are just feeling very sorry for me all over uh, the East Coast and Northeast, particularly those of you who are getting uh, socked in by snow here. Terrific segment with Kenny Polcari and very interesting news just out of the White House, just before we've gone on air with all of this market volatility. Uh, interesting story, of course, from the president who says that he's uh, upset uh, with Jerome Powell. He says he's not even a little bit happy with uh, Jerome Powell's appointment. And he says uh, that um, uh, he, he told us to the Washington Post, he said that Powell is way off base with what they're doing. Now, listen to this. He blamed the Fed for the recent stock market sell-off, the General Motors plan to close plants and cut more than 14,000 jobs. Somehow that was the Fed's fault. And the president argued that the Fed is hurting the U.S. economy by raising interest rates. He went on to say, quotes, 
I am doing deals and I'm not being accommodated by the Fed. Trump told the Post. They're making a mistake because I have a gut and my gut tells me more sometimes than anybody else's brain can ever tell me. Well, I think that about says it. Joining us now, of course, from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress, our senior political <laughs> analyst, Dan Mahaffey. Welcome back to the forecast, Dan. Please let's start with the president's comments on the Fed tonight, on how the Fed has ruined General Motors and made them close the plant, uh, the difficulty with the economy, and if you would like to, uh, the uh, president's gut versus other people's brains. Well, Michael, we haven't even been back from Thanksgiving for 48 hours, and we've got the president going after his Fed chair uh, like that and responding to the uh, the news from General Motors, which certainly has also uh, not just the president, but a lot of folks on the Hill up in arms about these job losses, even though that these uh, tax cuts and other measures were supposed to be uh, strengthening the economy. Um, it's interesting to see Washington here get a little shocked to see uh, companies thinking through uh, their long-term planning and approach to the future business cycle, uh, as opposed to Washington, where we tend to think just one news cycle at a time. Well, you know, he spoke, uh, the president apparently has spoken with the General Motors chairman, uh, chairwoman, and told her that he hoped uh, that this would be short term, that she should certainly find some other better car to build in those plants, and basically said, you know, get with the program, get on the stick or else, though we weren't really clear with what the or else was. And I can't, I'm trying to remember, Dan, and, and you're a lot smarter than I am, uh, see if you can remember a time when a president of the United States has basically directed private industry or threatened private industry that they better do X, Y, or Z or else. Well, the, the most nearest term example, and it was one that had a lot of my conservative friends up in arms, uh, was when President Obama went to bondholders of General Motors during the uh, the auto bailout during the financial crisis, uh, and basically told them to take the uh, take it on the chin when it came to the restructuring of GM, uh, and that was seen oh, right. by you know many people who are now very pro-Trump. Uh, they see that as a you know they claim that was a president moving wholesale towards uh, socialism or corporatism. Uh, but this is the president talking about a, a CEO like that. Um, you know, beyond that, you have to go back to, you know, the aspects of the New Deal that were eventually considered unconstitutional, like the uh, National Recovery Act. Uh, but things like that seem more in place in sort of a, a Peronist Argentina uh, or 1930s Italy <laughs> than they do in how we uh, see presidents dealing uh, with CEOs. Yeah. So uh, this is this is, uh, I guess, really not a surprise out of the president. But I'd like to go back and remind our listeners that at the end of 2016, all of the Fed governors gave their forecasts for where rates would be and where GDP growth would be right now. And rates are exactly they're about a quarter percent higher and GDP growth is much higher. So basically, the projections from the Janet Yellen Fed are consistent with where the Fed is and what the Fed's doing. And basically, in the past couple of months, the Fed hasn't done anything other than what it said it would do all the way along, given the growth it is seeing 
in the economy. So we're not seeing anything like we're not seeing any crazy behavior out of the Fed. But I'm I'm very curious uh, that the Fed has become the target. Do you have any thoughts uh, on on why the Fed is such a convenient target right now, Dan? I think part of it is the fact that the the president looks at the health of uh, the stock market and sees that as a direct correlation with the health of the economy. And as we all know, that's not a one for one comparison. They they do work well together, but it's not uh, the most direct indicator of economic health. Uh, as we've talked about on this podcast many times, investors uh, now have alternatives uh, that can can yield them some return uh, beyond the stock market. Uh, people have made a lot of money and they're looking to uh, to cash out. Um, but the and the the idea that these rate increases play into this uh, turbulence in the market is one narrative that the the president is seizing on. Uh, and it really goes, in a sense, to to be very focused on that one aspect um, where some commentators would say has even been artificially propped up, that these rates should have been going up uh, longer ago and faster. That's, that's still debated. But the Fed is holding its course. It's doing as exactly as it said it would. Uh, you know, the economy will continue to uh, – we see some of the yellow lights, but we don't see red lights. So the – the Fed wants to make sure it has arrows in its quiver should the business cycle follow its natural course, uh, and they need to step in again. But that, uh, again, doesn't uh, get to this idea that, uh, you know, Trump wants to see the the economy and particularly the stock market have some of these numbers that would look like, uh, you know, like the, you know, steroid numbers from East German swimmers. If you keep giving them, uh, you know, low interest rates, artificially low, much longer, uh, sure, we've we've won the short term, but we're not in good shape for the long term. Well, okay. So we 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 are going to watch, of course, when the Fed meets again this month, and it does certainly appear as if they will raise rates again. Um, and 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 so let's just let's 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 expect that for those of us who are watching the markets, expect expect Fed funds to go a quarter point higher. That typically has resulted in a higher yield on the ten-year. And remember, we look at something, uh, and people in the stock market and and, and economists look at the difference between the yield on the two-year Treasury bill and the ten-year Treasury note. And right now, that's about yeah. twenty-two or twenty-three basis points. It's less than a quarter of one percent. And if they raise those short rates, you know, and you see a two-year yielding more than a ten-year. That's typically not a good sign down the road for the economy. It's typically an indicator of recession. So we're going to watch what the Fed does in here. And then when you consider that the president might also impose these higher tariffs in the beginning of 2019, which he says he's going to do, uh, Dan, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. do do you think – are you getting any sense that that's just a uh, talking point? Or do you have a sense from the folks you're talking to on Capitol Hill that he's serious about that? I think he's serious about these, particularly, too, that even when you have a, a relative trade dove like uh, Larry Kudlow saying that there's not progress being made with the Chinese going into the G20 summit uh, this week, uh, that he wants to stick to that course. And his uh, mindset on trade and tariffs is, you know, that these are these are good for the economy and, and not a headwind, uh, even though we're seeing all these uh, these indicators from various producers and manufacturers in the economy that they're uh, seeing their input costs go up, and that's being reflected in some of their 
their uncertainty about their business plans. It's uh, it harkens back to the the Smoot uh, Hawley tariff era, where uh, the the factor that these tariffs were going up it just added to the unpredictability of the economy, uh, and that in turn, the more Washington interferes with this, the more uh, more decisions are made by fiat. The uh, as a result, the uh, Business uh, planning isn't as predictable, and it becomes harder to have a, uh, uh, a predictable economic course and a political course to match it. Okay, Dan, so I've got a couple of rapid-fire questions here. What should we expect from this meeting with uh, Pre- uh, President Xi uh, at the G20, between President Trump and President Xi? Are anything going to come from that? i got to do this I quick. I need a couple of these. Statements that perhaps save some face, but nothing that's going to be groundbreaking. Nothing groundbreaking, face saving. Okay, and so this is going to get dragged out. Though we might, it might, it might spark a little Santa Claus rally. We were talking to Kenny Polcari about the Santa Claus rally. You think that could do something there? Maybe. Maybe if there's a sense that we we might step away from some of these big numbers we're seeing on tariffs, or if we can at least slow down some of those tariffs. Uh, but right now they they seem to be uh, jostling in one direction, and that's not uh, not a way to calm down yet. Okay, so uh, I'm going to keep moving quickly. Nancy Pelosi going to be the Speaker of the House. Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, yes or no? I say yes until you can't beat someone with no one, and there's no one really stepping forward. So I say yes. Okay, so Nancy Pelosi is going to be the next Speaker. That's going to be good for the President, right? I think or the President think thinks so. that with uh, with Pelosi, he can he can make a deal. She's more of an old school politicians than one that's on the grassroots resistance uh, impeachment movement. And uh, I'm hearing that my uh, that folks around Washington are nervous uh, about the Mueller report that we 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 see what's going on with Manafort and that and that he's being accused of lying and so forth. But that there are more news coming from Mueller here shortly and Washington's nervous. Is that accurate? Yeah, we're certainly seeing a lot of the, uh, you know, this back and forth on uh, Corsi, uh, who's was working with Stone to get in touch with WikiLeaks, uh, Julian Assange, others. Uh, so the, if you're following the drip, 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 there's clearly something uh, rotten in Denmark when it came to people on the campaign team. I think Miller's going to end up uh, certainly causing consternation among Republicans with this uh, this aura of cor- corruption around uh, the Trump campaign. But I also think, uh, barring something revolutionary, there's not going to be this smoking gun that uh, ties Trump directly to Putin and hacked emails, that it was uh, a lot more of, a, in some cases, a confederacy of dunces than a, uh, than a vast conspiracy. Okay. And then finally, uh, just and, and we've got so much to talk about, Dan, so we've got to cover a lot next week, too. Uh, uh, I'm hearing that there is, even though the EU has accepted the terms of Brexit, uh, that there's no way the British Parliament's actually going to approve that. Is that true? Do you think that's accurate? I think that's accurate, and without going into the, the whole history of Northern Ireland and Ireland and what the dynamics are there, uh, the, the current structure is unacceptable for the, uh, the Protestant Unionists in Northern Ireland uh, who are keeping the minority May government afloat. Uh, and even among her own party, there's a, a sense that this entire deal is a bit of a dog's breakfast. Uh, so it's 
the best deal she could get under the circumstances. But uh, everyone in Britain has uh, very differing expectations of what they're going to get out of Brexit. And it's it's frankly impossible for May to satisfy everyone. So next week, we're going to find out what you think is actually going to happen there. I hope you're going to stay with us because coming up, uh, Dan Mahaffey, thank you so much. But I hope, Dan, you'll be able to stay with us. We're going to go now to Les Munson. Les Munson is just a fabulous expert on foreign relations. I know that you've worked with him before, too, Dan. Please stay with us. We're going to be right back with the great Les Munson, Munson on the Farcast. You're listening to Farcast. Do you have an upcoming function and need a dynamic speaker to engage your audience? You've enjoyed listening to the Farcast, so why not invite Michael Farr to speak at your next event? In addition to hosting the Farcast and serving as president of the advisory firm Farr, Miller & Washington, Michael is the longest-serving paid contributor to CNBC. He is recognized by audiences, and his presentations on the economic outlook are always well-received. Michael has recently appeared at such venues as the Economic Club of Memphis, the University of Delaware, Matheson Financial Conference, and the YPO-WPO Economic Summit. Add your event to the growing list of organizations who have been informed and captivated by Michael's insights. For more information or to book Michael for an upcoming event, please email me, Harry Jennings, at hjennings at farmiller.com. Or call me at 202-530-5608. You're listening to Forecast. Now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Forecast. I am Michael Farr, and I'm joining you this week from Naples, Florida. We had a wonderful Thanksgiving down here in my children, Robert and Maggie, were here, and Laurie, and we just had a terrific, terrific holiday. Wonderful dinner. One of the best dinners ever had, ever had. Just terrific. Uh, Most delicious food, and we didn't eat very much that day, and it was, and so by the time dinner rolled around, it was perfect. Okay, fabulous forecast tonight, Um, and and we listened to Kenny Polcari to start out with, talk about what's going on on Wall Street, how he thinks we're forming a bottom. We're going to see a Santa Claus rally, and a little bit muted, uh, perhaps. Perhaps 2019, I might be putting words in his mouth, but he's going to shift to value now, away from the fangs into value. That's important information from Kenny Polcari. Then Dan Mahaffey in segment two, really terrific, talking about what's going on in Washington, the expectations uh, for the G20 summit coming up where we're going to have this meeting, this this long-anticipated meeting face-to-face with President Xi and President Trump. Will they accomplish anything on this trade war? We heard from Larry Kudlow today, White House uh, economic advisor, that he uh, it doesn't feel like they're making much progress. So these are really important things. It was fascinating to hear, of course, Mahaffey on that. And we're going to get back to him still on Brexit. It sounds like he has some concerns about how that's really going to work out. But now, now, what a treat, ladies and gentlemen. We have one of our most popular guests. And thank you for the notes that you send about our guests. This is one of your favorites. Les Munson. As a principal at the interna- uh, in the international uh, uh, part of the BGR group, it's a government relations firm uh, in Washington, D.C., and he consults with foreign governments. Uh, he's been in Washington for a long time, 26-year career on Capitol Hill and in the executive branch. This is a Washington insider's insider. He was a chief of staff for Senator Mark Kirk of Illinois. Uh, he was in the Bush administration. I mean, 
Les Munson, all I can say is you're the man, and thank you so much for joining us again. Michael, I'm uh, thankful to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Well, we're really glad. We're really glad you're here. So give us your take of the uh, to start out with here of the post-election landscape. Uh, Dan Mahaffey says it looks like we're going to have Speaker Pelosi again. And when and we're getting ready to hear more from the Mueller report. And then we're going to shift to international because we do three segments on the forecast. We do Wall Street, Washington and the world. And who better to discuss the world and Washington Wall Street than Les Munson? So tell us what you think. Well, I think we're, uh, we're going to be in for some fun. I think uh, season three here of the Trump show is going to have some new characters. I like uh, this new young congresswoman from New York, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I don't particularly agree with her on policy stuff, but I find her to be very entertaining. She's got a nose for getting in the spotlight quickly. She's taken on Nancy Pelosi. She's taken on Lindsey Graham, and I think she's run the table on him. And I think she's like 28 years old, kind of amazing. Uh, I, I think we're in for a really good show. There's going to be a lot of fighting between Republicans and Democrats. Some of it will be just for effect. Some of it will be uh, more on substantive grounds. I think you're going to have some real interesting, in terms of foreign affairs, some real interesting debates on how we handle Russia how we handle Iran and how we handle China between the two parties. I think the one where they might have the most agreement is on China, which is weird because it used to be uh, used to be Iran where everyone agreed. Uh, now I think it's going to be China. So uh, I, I think we're in for for some great news stories, a lot of entertainment value. The cable news network's rating should be very high. Should be very high, so we should be investing in Comcast or something like that. That's tongue-in-cheek, ladies and gentlemen. Please don't uh, go out and buy Comcast. Or I don't know. Do your research. Maybe it's a great buy. I don't have any idea. So Congress, uh, Congresswoman Cortez is 28 years old. Is she the one, as I remember, who said she couldn't afford to come to Washington to organize things until she started to get a paycheck from her from uh, uh, once she was elected? Yeah, and, you know, she's... Uh, you know, I, I think she's uh, pleading poverty maybe a little bit too much, but she's not wrong. You know, members of Congress make about $175,000 a year, give or take. That's not a lot of money in the Washington area. They have to maintain two homes. I'm, I'm uh, enough of a smart thing uh, to be a little bit sympathetic to the argument she's making. I think we probably should raise the salary of members of Congress. They work very hard. They have to have two homes. Uh, we should give them a little bit of a break. They haven't had a raise in about 10 years. And, and, you know, uh, it is shocking to hear a lobbyist suggest <laughs> that, that perhaps <laughs> members of Congress should make more money. That's that's uh, wow. OK, uh, uh, so but as we as we look at this, you mentioned this upcoming uh, G20 summit. What do we expect there and what do you think President Xi wants? I mean, we know what President Trump wants, but but what about President Xi? I think it's entirely possible that the best thing to come out of the G20 summit are a lot of great tango metaphors from the news media. It's going to be down in Argentina. I I expect heavy coverage of of tango (laughs) metaphors. We're going to have to see between the Kabuki or have to see past the Kabuki theater. I think Trump and Xi are going to get along fine in public. I think they'll put on a good show. I actually think the Trump administration is doing a good job of lowering expectations about what could be done at this summit. 
but I think I think she is under a lot of pressure. I think the administration Trump has shown that he's utterly unafraid to put his foot on the gas in terms of putting pressure on Beijing. And he's now, if anything, with a bipartisan Congress who are where both parties are very skeptical of China. He may have a little more uh, backing to to be to have that tough line on Beijing. So she's in a tough spot. Is he is he going to be able to uh, get something out of this and still look strong back home? I think I think he's going to have a tough time doing that. Okay. All right. All right. Well. Uh, let's. Uh, we're going to watch closely, and certainly Wall Street is watching with bated breath. Uh, though, as Kenny and I were discussing, you know, uh, it, a lot of this still is the economy, and we are seeing a really strong consumer buying season here through Black Friday and Black Monday and online sales. The consumers out there spending in an economy that's driven 70% by the consumer, that's important. So uh, we're, we're, we're watching that closely. Um, so let, 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 let me move on. Uh, let's, uh, uh, I haven't heard, I want to get to Russia, but I haven't heard much about Iran lately at all. Uh, have things calmed down at all? I know you follow that closely. Can you give us an update? Well, the administration imposed the second and probably most important round of sanctions on Iran a couple of weeks ago, about three weeks ago, right around the election time that are the consequence of Trump pulling out of the nuclear deal. The, the sanctions were reimposed in two phases, one three months after he pulled out, and then this final one, which was six months after. And, and you're seeing new oil sanctions on Iran, uh, financial sanctions. There's, there's really, we're going back to kind of that, um, that period during the Obama administration when, where sanctions were at their maximum on Iran from the United States. Now, the difference now is our allies in Germany, France, and England are not joining us in imposing those sanctions. Some of our sanctions kind of implicate what those allies can do, but they're, they're not as interested in, as, as multi, in multilateralizing these sanctions as the U.S. is. There's still a lot of well, areas where those who, who want tougher sanctions on Iran have to push. I think, and I think we need, it bears careful watching the administration in the next couple of months, particularly John Bolton, who's a real hawk on Iran. Yes, and uh, well, he he absolutely is now. Dan Mahaffey, I don't know if you're still with us, but Dan has made the point for a long time, less that the president doesn't seem comfortable with multi-party sort of negotiations or agreements, and he can only kind of do bi-party, one-on-one, or bilateral, if you will. Uh, it, do, do you agree, Dan? Are you there? I, I don't know if we still. I am, yes. But okay, am I am I saying that properly? Yes, that he has a, a greater comfort with the the one-on-one meetings than the the pageantry and the the, the careful nuances of the of the group statements. And then, so does so, uh, and I I kind of have seen that as Dan has been talking to us about it less. But if the president is going to go do these one-on-one deals, how do we put together that coalition that we that the country would need in order to enforce some of these sanctions and make them more effective? Or, or tell tell me how you see this working out with Iran, and then I want to go to Russia because that looks more dangerous and getting hotter. Right. Well, I, I totally agree with Dan. The president's very uncomfortable in in uh, <laughs> in, in a situation where he can't just kind of be the alpha in a two-person exchange. 
uh, I think he doesn't know how to do it in a bigger group dynamic or something like that. It's it's it is an odd thing, and I I don't think we're going to see a lot of love from our our Western allies on Iran in the near future. Not only because of of the weird Trump phenomenon, but also because our our allies and the Iranians now expect a Democrat to be elected in 2020 who will get the United States back into the Iran nuclear deal. So our our allies in Europe and our nemesis in the Middle East both are holding their breath for the next two years until a president, Kamala Harris, for example, can get the U.S. back into a nuclear agreement. I would, I would know, make my one, point, one interesting point on the G20, I think, is Trump is going to have a meeting with uh, the, Japanese, uh, the Japanese prime minister and the Indian prime minister at the same time. It'll be the three of them meeting together. That's a significant step. And I think that is maybe a sign of evolution in our president. Well, that's. Uh, I think anytime we see these uh, exchanges of information, particularly uh, that's that can only be seen as a positive. I, I think that that's terrific. Uh, so, uh, I, my friend Greg Valier says, as you as you point that out, Greg says uh, that it, it will take certainly 270 electoral votes uh, to get the president reelected. A lot of people have been saying he had a pretty good path to reelection. But he's beginning, according to Greg, to lose support in the upper Midwest, and that's absolutely a critical area for the president to hold. You agree that that how does the president get back the upper Midwest? Is it is it enough to go after GM? No, I think I think it's I think it's a uh, it's a bigger problem than just the Midwest. He's lost. Uh, enough that you, uh, to the extent you uh, that it matters, he's lost enough support in the suburbs in America across the board that he's made it very easy for the Democrats to to win in any number of states. This is going to hurt him from Florida all the way up to Wisconsin. He he needs to do a better job of appealing to those Americans who are kind of between the rural and urban areas. That's where the real battle is going to be in 2020. What we saw three weeks ago was the Democrats have a much better message for the suburbs. President has to change the way he's approaching the suburbs, I think, to get reelected. And I'm not sure he has it in him. If the election were coming up uh, in the next six months, you think the president would not be reelected? That's right. That's right. I think I think he, wow. he's, he can probably hold on to Ohio, uh, but he's, he's going to have trouble in those other swing states where he did well, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and he'll even wow. have trouble in Florida. Wow. Mahaffey, you agree with that? I do. I, I think that, uh, as Les very correctly points out, that collapse in the suburbs, which is the heart of the American swing vote, we, we saw how it moved against the Republicans in the House. Uh, and it's, it's good to heed, uh, I think, the lesson of of Republicans uh, like John Kasich and others who have uh, honed their message in a different direction uh, that uh, that appealed to these voters in, in these cross uh, cross races through the suburbs. 
Okay, so uh, that's that's fascinating. I, I I haven't been hearing that much out in the public. So, ladies and gentlemen, listening to the forecast, we're hearing something now. I think some new information that perhaps the president has some work to do before he gets to this 2020 uh, election, and it's not going to be an easy glide path in as it as it appeared that it was perhaps as recently as June or July. So now uh, we are out of time, but I've still got to get to Russia. So please bear with me. Russia seems to be making many more aggressive noises uh, directed towards the Ukraine. It seems that uh, President Putin feels that nobody can stop him. Maybe he's correct. What's going on there? What's at stake? Um, And and is this something uh, that the United States cares about less? It's something that uh, the U.S. cares about very much. I I couldn't – it appears to me that Russia is the aggressor in what is happening in uh, in this current instance between Russia and Ukraine. I think what's going on can benefit President Poroshenko of Ukraine if he plays it the right way. He he needs to be very adept. He's got a re-election bid coming up here in the next few months. He's going to he's going to he's under a lot of pressure to handle this the right way. But clearly, the Russians have taken the first shot uh, in this particular episode. It's a big deal in the U.S. Democrats have been pushing for bigger and and stronger sanctions on Russia. Republicans have been largely resisting because they saw it as Democrats using the issue to criticize President Trump and the way he got elected in 2016. Involving Ukraine changes that dynamic. Republicans are happy to come to the defense of Ukraine when Russia's the aggressor. So this really could change the way Congress in particular handles new sanctions on Russia. So you think that Congress will step up and will actually support heavier sanctions against Russia. And what does that do with the U.S.? uh, I mean, I I can't understand how we have as good a relationship as we have with Russia right now, given, I guess, as as, as much of of the election interference dialogue back and forth. I don't know how much merit there is to all of it. But even at this level, it it would seem to me that it would be wise, uh, you know, for at least appearance sake to keep your distance. But um, uh, you think that Congress uh, now will actually step up? Yeah, go ahead, Dan. And also just with one other thought on this is the the way the Putin's mindset works, that this provocation comes right before the G20, uh, is in a sense a way, too, of when all eyes are on the, the Washington-Beijing relationship of, uh, of his way of uh, raising his hand and kind of yelling out in class that Moscow still matters. <laughs> That's right. They were they were falling down the list. They were below uh, China, Iran, and Saudi Arabia in terms of countries we are concerned about. But now they're getting back up into the top two. Oh boy, there's there's somewhere I never want to be. Uh, gentlemen, I can't thank you enough for being on the Farcast. I've learned so much again tonight as we go forward. Les Munson, I hope you'll come back. Dan Mahaffey, thank you, uh, and we hope you feel better. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us for another Farcast. Uh, we, uh, we appreciate you having us into your homes, into your earbuds, into your living rooms and offices. It means the world to us. Please keep sending your notes and your questions that you'd like us to answer on the Farcast. Please remember that if you think you heard any recommendation to buy or sell any type of security or stock or investment on the Farcast, you did not. Please, if you're thinking about making a change to your portfolio or your strategy in any way, please check with your financial advisor or a financial professional, get some advice, be deliberate, do your research. And if we can help you at Farr, Miller and Washington, it would be our great delight and pleasure. I have some wonderful, very experienced people uh, who would love to uh, talk with you and see if they can help. Uh, 
it, 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 we are uh, reachable at farmiller.com, F-A-R-R miller.com. In Naples, Florida, uh, with a truly uh, thankful heart this week, I am Michael Farr. We'll see you next week on the Farcast.